0: All right. while they receive the offering, go ahead and pull out your Bibles to Acts 12. Acts 12 is where we're going to be this morning. And so let's get into the Word this morning. If you did not bring a Bible, there is one for you. There's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. So you can reach down there and you can pull that out. Uh, Those blue Bibles are are yours to take. If you don't have a Bible at home, you don't own a Bible, like you didn't forget it in the car, forget it at home, uh, please steal that one. You you can take that. That's our gift to you. Um, You can tell all your friends that you stole a Bible from church church um take take that one in the blue Bible uh, acts 12 is on page 1019 1019. Um, as Brett said earlier, uh, we are going through this this series in Acts, um, and so we, uh, last summer, we walked through the first nine chapters of Acts, um, and then this summer, we're going to walk through the next nine to ten chapters of Acts together uh, all summer long, and so we, we kicked it off a couple of weeks ago, and we're just kind of cruising, cruising through Acts, and so chapter 12 is like the best perfect Father's Day text because there's just so many people die. Um, there's a lot of death. One guy gets eaten by. Worms. It's just going to be a great Father's Day for us here at Flourishing Grace. And there's really two things that I want us to see this morning uh, as we as we work through this text together in Acts 12. I want us to see the, the life-giving power of humility. The life-giving power of humility and the life-sucking uh, power of pride. That's what we're going to see as, as, as we walk through this text together. There's this life-giving power of humble prayer. As we come before our God and our King with humility in our hearts, asking Him to move on our behalf, there, there is life that springs forth from that. And when we try to do it all on our own, we say, no, 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 I got this. I, I can I can handle this. Man, there's just nothing but death comes from that. And So we're going to read through the whole chapter this morning, which is a little bit longer than maybe uh, we're used to here at Flourishing Grace, but we're going to do it anyways. And so... Uh, Here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the Word of God. If you're new here, man, we believe that this is every word on every page has been inspired by Him. Yes, written by human hands, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we give it honor and reverence, even if it's a little bit longer maybe than normal. I'm going to ask you guys, if you're able, would you just stand with me as I read it for us this morning? Acts 12, we're going to start in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed by the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from the hand of of Herod and and from all the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And so they kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But he motioned with his hand for them to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. And when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Alright, so we see in Acts 12 the same thing that we see again and again and again and again and again and again through every chapter in Acts. Nearly every chapter in Acts we see this theme of opposition in advance, opposition in advance, opposition in advance. Right? The church is opposed either internally or externally um, by, by the Jews or by the Romans again and again and again in many different forms, in many different ways. They're opposed and then that God shows up and the church advances we even see the language in Acts 12. It, may, it might not be more apparent in any chapter than Acts 12. Clearly, in the beginning, the church is being opposed, right? We, we have Herod. Now, this is Herod Agrippa. It's, it's confusing as we read through the Bible and when you come to the name Herod um, because there's, there's several different Herods, right? There's a line of what we call the Herodian kings, um, so as you study history and you see um, the kings of Judea at this time in, in, in the world, the, the Roman Empire rules and reigns the known world. Caesar, the emperor of Rome, um, is, is the ruler of all things. And under Caesar, he has appointed kings to, to lead these different uh, smaller kingdoms that all pay homage to Caesar. They all pay homage to Rome. That, that's, that is how this works. And so over the, this region of Judea where, uh, the first century Israelites live that you have the Herodian king. So when Jesus is born, for those of you who grew up in church, or maybe you've heard the, the story of Christmas before, right? We know that Herod, Herod was not happy, right? He knew this idea that, um, that one day the Messiah was going to come, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, that uh, and that he was going to rule and reign. And so he's afraid that some, he hears rumor that this is happening, and he's afraid. Remember when the wise men come and they say, man, we're going to see the Messiah. Herod's like, hey, why don't you, why don't you find him and tell me where he's at, right? And Herod wants to kill him. Him, wants to kill Jesus. That's Herod the Great. That, that's, that's this Herod's uh, grandfather. So Herod the Great is, is the Herod who is, who is reigning and ruling at the time when Jesus was born. Now we come to Acts and t- kind of two generations later, Herod Agrippa is, is ruling and reigning the same region, the same land. He's got his grandfather's job. All right, and so what he has in this time, as the early church begins to rise, especially in Jerusalem where this is taking place, right? Thousands of men have given their lives to Christ. The church is booming, and there's this there's this big tension that is coming between the Jews who have always lived there, and now these these new Jewish Christians. And so when Herod sees this. Herod also, being Jewish, okay, Herod is also Jewish, Herod um, begins to persecute these new Christians. And it says that he lays violent hands on them, going so far as to kill James, the brother of John. Now remember, there's two James, right? There's James, the brother of John, the the sons of thunder, best nickname in the world. Um, You have James, the, the brother of John, he's killed. Now there's James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter actually refers to him later in the same passage. So you're like, In case you're wondering, like, wait, why does Peter tell them to go tell James if James has already been killed? Uh, Two different James, okay, two different James. And so uh, Herod kills James, uh, the brother of John, these first disciples of Jesus, the sons of Zebedee. He kills James, and the Jews are like, yes! Yes, this is what we want. Herod's on our side. We're going to crush him. We're going we're gonna to wipe him out. And so Herod, being the good king that he is, loves the applause of his people. He says, all right, we can do better than that. And so he says, let's go get the top dog. Who, who is the guy in charge of everything that's happening in this church? Um, at, least, at least in this area of the world, in Jerusalem. All right? that guy's Peter. Peter's the guy. P- Peter is the one who is who's known as the one who kind of stands up and, and gives these these eloquent and beautiful uh, sermons and, and just in a. And just communicates the gospel so clearly. And people are coming to follow Jesus as the Holy Spirit speaks through him. He's like, let's go after Peter. And so he finds Peter, arrests Peter, puts him in prison. And, and the outcome is going to be the same, right? We see clearly that the only reason he doesn't, he doesn't kill him right then and there is because it's Passover. So he says, well, we'll wait till after Passover. And so Peter is in prison. After Passover, he's going to bring him out, bring him before the people, and kind of let the court of public opinion decide whether he lives or dies. And, of course, they're going to they're choose. The Jews are going to choose to kill him. And then in verse 5, we see this really important text. In verse 5, we see the response of the church. It says that but, in the midst of all this, but earnest prayer, but earnest prayer. That is is one of the the kind of the hinging points, the key points of this entire text. But before we move any farther, one of the things that we must wrestle with, one of the things that we must ask, and some of you are already there. Some of you are kind of already naturally curious, or maybe even you like to poke at things. You're like, wait, what, what is that? The the question that I wrestle with in this text is: Wait a second, James is beheaded, gets his head cut off, and Peter gets an angel. Like favorites? I mean, it's the Son of Thunder. You're going to kill him off, and you're going to let this guy live. I mean, what, what the heck? This is the guy that denies Jesus. You're going to let him live, but the Son of Thunder? You're going to take his life? You can't kill him off. But they do why is this? How is this? I think there's a couple important things to remember. First, we've got to remember who our God is, right? We, we talk about this idea in Acts, we've been talking about the past few weeks, of opposition in advance, right? The church is opposed. It's important to remember and to realize that God has never actually truly opposed. Never has been, never will be. It might feel like it to us, but there's never been a moment ever, ever, ever where he has felt threatened, There's never been a moment where he's been unsure or in the least bit scared. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. When James's head hits the ground, God is not like, I didn't see that coming. No, it's like, I I knew that was coming. In fact, in the Gospels, um, in, in Mark, uh, G- Jesus is talking to James, and he says, man, you're not going to be able to drink the cup that I drink. And James, James son's of, son of thunder, yeah, yeah, I am. And Jesus says, okay, you, you will drink the same cup as me. Jesus says to James, you're going to die a brutal death. But then to Peter, in the Gospels, he says, you're going you're to be an old man now, you're, you're going to die a brutal death as well. He even communicates that. In your old age, you are going to be forced to do something that you don't want to do. People are going to drag you out. They're going to make you play, go a place you don't want to go. But he says to Peter, you're going you're to live to be an old man. You're going to live to be an old man. This does not surprise God in the least. And in the moment James's head hits the floor, his eyes open to his Savior, to his friend. And he's met with an embrace of Christ. This is not a tragedy to God. This is all a part of his plan. He knows exactly what he is doing. And so so if we can, in our minds, come to this realization that God has never been opposed, that there's not a moment of kind of shock to him. Now, the church is, the church is like, what is happening? Like, what are we going to do? Our friends' heads are falling off. Like, what what are we going to do? But God is not. So we must ask the question: when, when, we, when we experience persecution and hardship and, and surprise in our life, when there's things that creep in our life that give us anxiety and stress and worry, and we're like, "Oh, I didn't see that coming. We must ask, "What is God doing? What is he doing in this?" Because he's not surprised. So what is he doing? And I'm going to make the case this morning that God in Acts 12 is doing the same thing that God has done for thousands of years in the hearts of his people. Again and again and again and again throughout the Old Testament and then in into the New Testament. God again and again and again uses the suffering of his people to draw them nearer to himself. Again and again and again, he is wooing them back to himself and correcting their hearts and and inclining their in, their affections towards him and reminding them of his goodness and reminding them of their of his grace and reminding them maybe more than anything of their need for him. This is what he's doing here. If, if you remember last week, Binger preached on Acts ten and eleven. Acts ten and eleven is just like just goodness. It's just it just. It, Man, this, this, this angel shows up and, and restores this relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are being filled with the Holy Spirit, and the gospel is going forth to the ends of the world, and everybody's just fired up. They're standing in amazement and awe, and they're like, we're doing it. Like, this is amazing. Like everything that we that Jesus called us to do is happening. Success. And the next 12 God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let, let me remind you of your need for me. Let me let me draw your hearts back and let me remind you that this is my mission and it's my victory. I- I'm gonna be the one who does this. I'm gonna do it through you, but I'm gonna be the one who completes everything that I've called you to be and everything that I've called you to do. I wanna do it through you. You're you're not meant to do this alone. You're not meant to do this alone. And so for those of you in this room who, who maybe this morning you've come in here and you feel like you're, you're trying to live this life of faith, you're trying to live this journey with Christ, but you're trying to do it alone. You're trying to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and you're wondering, why can't I get up early and read my Bible? Like, Why, why can't I never seem to like go more than a few days and then I just kind of just stop and I keep dropping the ball and I, can't, I can never just seem to get it going. I can never, I can never have the right words when it comes to, to sharing my faith at work. I'm always afraid. I'm always concerned. I mean, you weren't meant to do this alone. You were not meant to do this alone. And my prayer this morning is that God would, would gently, gently and kindly, or, or, or maybe not so gently, um, re-incline your affections towards him and rewrite your mind so that you might remember that he is God, the victory is his, and the mission is his. Everything that he wants to happen in your life, all of the victory that he wants to give to your life, and he wants to produce that. He doesn't want you to do it. He wants to do it through you. He wants to do it through you. And so he is doing this in our lives constantly, always. He is working to this end. He is using our um, afflictions and our pain and our sorrows to draw us near to himself again and again and again and again. In, my, in your mundane, everyday uh, kind of slog of life, right? So, so when my, my little two-year-old terrorist son, okay? Now some of you have met Haddon. He turns two tomorrow. And you're like, he's not a terrorist. He's like the sweetest, kindest, chindlest little boy. He's like so cuddly. He loves his dad. Yeah, he loves his dad. Come over to my house tonight, eight thirty, and try to put his PJs on him. (laughs) If you make it out alive, I'll give you five bucks. Okay. If the house doesn't burn down, I'll give you twenty. Okay. Like he can just, he can just. God, oh, just drive me crazy. But in that moment of like anger, it seems small. It seems insignificant. It seems, it doesn't, it, Acts 12 is like here. Like pain threshold is so high. People, people are, heads are getting cut off. They're getting thrown in prison. Like they're friends. They're crying out to God with fear in their hearts. But in the small things in life, God is giving us opportunities to humbly come before him and say, man, this, this whole fatherhood thing. I can't do it. So I was talking about earlier with the the parenting conference. If there's any hope for my boys to ever, to ever know the sweetness of their Savior, it will come from Him alone. I can't do it. We cannot produce that in our kids. Can't do it. And our, and our marriages and our frustrations with, listen, fellas, I know it's Father's Day, but every lady in this room knows the thing that you do, that you always do, and, and it just drives your wife crazy, right? That thing, ladies, you cannot fix that in him. You can't fix it in him. I know, listen, you've tried. How's it working out for you, all right? You, you just can't fix it in him. Man, we come before the God of all things. It's an opportunity for us to humbly come before him in prayer and say, man, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I need you to show up in my life. I need you to produce the victory in my marriage. I need you to produce the victory in my parenting. I, I, cannot, I cannot do this. I can't produce it. And so all of these little things are, are building in us this, this greater character so that when the Acts 12 events happen, now hopefully nobody in your life gets their head cut off, but when the doctor calls and it's cancer, When your friend calls and, man, they were pregnant and now they're not anymore, you will have the same reaction of the church in Jerusalem, but earnest prayer. That is not our natural human reaction. That comes with a lifetime of discipline and all these smaller moments training us and creating in us this humility before God, seeing Him producing the victory, seeing Him drawing near to us with love and kindness and affection. And that's the small things produce the greater thing. John Calvin, uh, the great theologian, uh, wrote it this way. He, he said this, he says, Unless these provocations, provocations sharpen our desire to pray, we be more blockish. It's a nice way of saying idiot, dumb. We just become more dumb. Therefore, so soon as any persecution ariseth, let us by and by get ourselves to prayer. All of these smaller provocations, these these small little things that that lead us to anger, that lead us to frustration, that lead us to... I'm going to strangle somebody. All of these smaller things must sharpen us towards prayer. They, they must increase our desire and our affection to draw near to our God, knowing that he loves us. Right? Brett opened with that text this morning in our gathering time. We didn't talk about that. That was just like perfectly timed. This idea of a loving father, when we come to him and we ask him, right? we're like, hey, can I have some bread? He's not going to give you a rock. He's not going to do that. We have a loving Father. We get to come before Him and say, man, I can't do this on my own. And so the small things are sharpening us for the greater things. So that by and by, we must get ourselves into prayer in every single moment of life. When we taste the pain of sin, when we taste um, the the, the brokenness of our lives, whether sorrow or whether anger or whether jealousy, we we turn to Him in prayer. Friends, this is, this is the humility that Christ produces in us and through us. We're going to see that in a minute. And so this is what the church uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, where are we? in Jerusalem does, right? They, 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 they move towards honest prayer. Not, not, not a couple people. The entire church, thousands gather to begin to pray for Peter. They see what happens to James. They know what's going to happen to Peter. And they gather in homes throughout the city to pray, right? We see uh, in one home when, when Peter uh, is uh, freed by the angel, he's taken to the home of of Mary. This is uh, John Mark's mom, and apparently she's she's loaded. She's got a she's got a big house. They, they have an external wall and a gate. They have a servant girl, Rhoda, um, and so there's a ton of people there praying fervently, praying earnestly, praying that God would bring rescue and redemption uh, to to Peter. And so in our humility, we go to God and we declare: Man, I I cannot produce, I cannot win, if there's going to be anything good in my life, if there's gonna be any freedom from sin, any freedom from this anger, any freedom from this anxiety, any freedom from this worry, it must come through you. God says it in the Psalms, He says it this way: in Psalm 50, verse 15, he says, <clears throat> And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. God wants to show up in the pain of His people, by the prayers of His people, to be glorified by His people. He wants to show up in the, in the pain of His people, when we experience pain and sorrow, whether it's intense or whether it's small. He wants to show up in the pain of His people through the prayers of His people, so that He might be glorified by His people, all right? Uh, last uh, Thursday, last Thursday, this, this past week, this past week was so crazy busy. It was nuts. There were so many things going on. Uh, we had a summer together event, all right? A lot of you guys were there. We played volleyball over in West Bountiful Park and there was thunderstorms and lightning and you guys just pressed through. And you're like, it's fine. We're going to be fine. Let's just play in the rain. Um, until late into the night, you guys are playing, playing volleyball. And listen, if you were playing volleyball, summer together, and your team is just getting owned, just getting owned. I mean, probably because you're playing my team, okay? Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, Missy May trainer, Kerry Walsh Jennings, right? Multiple gold medal Olympic sand volleyball players, they show up. Hey, you guys need any help? Y- your response is not, uh, no, we're good. And, it, and your response is also not, yeah, sure, come on, you can be on my team. Um, here, listen, I'll serve it. You said it to me and I'm going to spike it. No, 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 the response is, here's the ball. I'm just going to kind of stand as far over to the edge as possible. I'm just going to let you, I'm going to let you do your thing. I'm just going to watch glory happen in front of me, right? And this is what we see in the people of Acts. The the way that they pray, their prayers, what do they pray for? What do they pray for? I, I actually think this is important. And we see, we see it there in, in verse 5. But earnest prayer was made by the church for Peter. Now, it seems simple, and it seems like something you just kind of gloss over and it's like, all right, sweet. But I think it's actually important. God wants to, to show up in the pain of his people, through the prayers of his people, so that he might be glorified by his people. Uh, a, a, a prayer of humility does not say, here's what I want you to do. They don't. They don't pray for hair to be eaten by worms. They don't pray for an angel to, to show up. They don't be, pray for the guards to be put to death. They just say, "Would you just, would you just, just care for our friend? Would you, would you just protect our friend? However you see fit. He, here's the ball. You do, you do your thing. This is listen." We, we don't get to dictate. We don't get to say. In humility, we just say, I love this person. Would you, would you draw them to yourself? Would you rescue and redeem, right? Here at Flourishing Grace, we, we pray for one. Every one of us here at Flourishing Grace, if you've been here for a while, every one of us has one person in our life that lives here locally, lives here in South Davis County, that does not know Jesus yet. And this is how we ought to pray for them. We just pray, God, in your way, you do it however you want to do it, whether it's if it's worms Fine. Like, that would be amazing. I don't know what that would look like, but that would be crazy. All right? It doesn't matter. You show up however you want to show up. In humility, we come before him and say, man, this is yours. It is not mine. You show up and you receive the glory however you would do so. And so what we see in the first half of this text is the humility of the church. Just humble people coming before their God and saying, man, however you might choose to do this. You do it. And we see the all-time gold medal record winner of redemption and restoration show up. And he frees Peter in his own way where he receives all of the glory. He receives all the glory. Now, the second half of this text is different. The second half, we see Herod, right? Let's look at it again together just to kind of refresh our memory now, Herod was angry with the people. This is verse 20. The people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on the royal robes, took up a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately the angel struck him down because he did not give glory to God the Glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Right? So, we see in the beginning, we see this, this picture of humility. And then in the end, we see this picture of pride in, in Herod. Right? Now, if you, if you remember, I said at the beginning, right? It, God is constantly using our pain and He's using our sorrow to give us opportunities to come before Him and trust Him. If you guys remember in Numbers 20, Numbers 20, right, uh, is kind of the moment where Moses, the, the one who God has called and has chosen, and, and it's just this picture of humility again and again and again in the midst of intense pain and in the of intense of trial. He's just humble again and again and again and again. But then in Numbers 20, right, Moses strikes the rock twice. What was the emotion that led to that? What was, what was he feeling? It says, what was he feeling? Somebody said it. Anger. What's Herod feeling? What's it tell us? In verse whatever that is, verse 20. Herod was angry. He's frustrated, man. He's frustrated. And so he puts on these royal robes. And in, in Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, right? This is, a, this is a non-biblical, this is a historical work written by a Jewish guy, Josephus. He writes of the history of the Jewish people. And in this, he depicts this story in far greater detail. In far greater detail. He talks about this robe that Herod puts on that is made of pure silver. And when he walks into the room, it just shines through the entire place. And he takes his seat on the throne. And in the reflection of this robe, it's blinding everybody in the room. Like, what is happening? And here's what he writes. He goes on and he writes this about what happens next. This is after the people say, I "Man, the words of a God, not of a man. A severe pain also arose in his belly. This is like as he's standing there in the moment. And began in the most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I whom you call a God am commanded presently to depart from this life. Well, providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me. And I, who was called by you immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. But I am bound to accept of what providence allots as it pleases God. For we have by no means lived ill, but in splendid and happily manner, when he said, but is it in splendid and happily manner? When he said this, the pain was becoming the pain was become violent. Accordingly, he was carried into the place, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die in little time. Herod is is uh, attacked by this internal worms, some some sort of. Some people sort of like, I don't know, tapeworm or something crazy is going on. And it's attacking his gut and his stomach. And in, in that moment, he's, he's standing before the people. And they say, man, the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod's like, yes. And then all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, no. 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 And everything is removed from him. The kingdom His royal robes and the the glory and the goodness and even his life is taken. And God props up this image for you and I that we might see that in our pain and in our anger, in our suffering, we have a choice. We can go one of two ways. We can allow that anger. We can allow that pain. We can allow that suffering to turn us into somebody like Herod that says, man, I'm going to, I'll show them. I'll show up and I'll show them my glory. I'll show them my greatness. I'll show them my my splendor and my awe. I'll work my way up the ladder. I'll pick myself up by my bootstraps. I'll get it done and people will sing my praises. Or in the picture of the early church, we see people who just say, man, we can't do this. Not our will be done, but your will be done. However you choose to do this, this this is your call. You are the God of all glory. Does not matter how you do it. We just, we just want you to help our friend. We have a choice. We can trust in the sweetness of our Father, or we can say, No, no, I, I'm going to show the people in my life that, that I, can, I can do it myself. We can become our own Father. We see this more perfectly in the picture of Christ. The picture of Christ in Philippians 2 uh, 3 through 11. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. He says, Do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God— for though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men being found in human form and he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see this so perfectly in Christ. We see it so perfectly in Him. In His pain and His suffering, He yields to the Father. In His sorrow and His shame, He yields to the Father. He says, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it doesn't matter how you choose to do it, just do it. To you be the glory forever. And God exalts him. Mary talks about this in the Magnificat and in in Luke. She says, Man, he exalts those of humble estate. But what does he do to the proud? Scatters them in the desires of their hearts. God is fiercely opposed to pride because pride separates us from his love and from his glory. Fathers in the room, we must be humble men who come before our God and say, you are far more powerful and far more loving than I will ever be. And so friends, I don't know what pain you're going through right now. Maybe it is intense. Maybe it is cancer. Or, or maybe it's small. Maybe, maybe it's a small little thing in your life. These are opportunities for us as followers of Jesus to model our Savior, to be molded and shaped into his likeness, to come before him and say, man, not my will be done, but yours. Shape me and mold me into your likeness. Transform me from one degree of glory to another. Help me to walk in your spirit, to to cling to you and to see through my prayers, to see your power and your love for me. And so friends, here's what I want us to do. If you just bow your heads with me for a moment. Whatever pain, whatever sorrow, whatever anxiety or stress that that you are carrying right now, I want to just give you a minute to come before your Father in heaven who is good and who loves you more than I can begin to say, more than I have words for you. And in just complete humility, lay it before him. And with earnest prayer, ask him to move. Whether it's a, that's in your life or in the life of someone you love. But to give it to him. Say, God, this is yours. Have your way so that you may be glorified in this. Not my will be done, but your will be done. To him be the glory forever and ever. Jesus we are we a are weak people, feeble in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally, just pathetically weak. So forgive us for where we have begun to believe that we can accomplish we can accomplish your will in our lives. Forgive us for where we have begun to believe that in some way we should perform that we are in control. That we've got it. We can handle it. Give us a humility so that you might be exalted in our lives. So that the world might look in and say, man, I've never seen anything like that before. And that you would receive all the glory in our pain and our sorrow as we cling to you all the more tightly. I pray these things in your name and in the name of Jesus. Amen.